Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We are done with our series in the book of Leviticus for now, and this week we are starting a new series on the Ten Commandments, which we will be calling the Ten Words. In this episode, Peter Lighthart and James Jordan sit down to discuss some introductory matters about the Ten Words, and they'll discuss things like does it inform our life and our worship today, and towards the end they'll have a discussion about natural law. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and here is Peter Lighthart and James Jordan discussing the Ten Words. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James Jordan. Alistair Roberts, who usually joins us on the podcast, is winging his way across the Atlantic, I believe, as we speak, on his way to the U.S. He's going to spend several weeks traveling around the U.S. speaking in various locations, and part of that will be here in Birmingham. He'll be teaching at the uh, end of July in our Junior Fellows Program. Brian Motes is here. I'm making sure that we stay on track and that everything gets properly recorded. And in the corner, back in the corner, uh, being very, very, very quiet is John Crawford, our executive director. Happy to have everyone here to discuss a new topic. Uh, we had have been discussing the uh, offering system of offerings that we find in the early chapters of Leviticus. That's been the series we've done most recently. And we finished that, at least what we're going to do with it at the moment. Uh, in the last episode, uh, we've covered all the specific offerings and we looked at a couple of passages that listed a number of different offerings that are part of a larger ritual. We looked at the priestly ordination and the Day of Atonement in the last couple of episodes. And uh, we hope to return to Leviticus at some point and talk about other themes in Leviticus, the question of purity and impurity, uh, some of the uh, social laws that uh, are in the latter chapters of Leviticus. Uh, but we're going to take a break from Leviticus for the next 12 weeks or so and talk about another topic, and that is the Ten Words. Usually known as the Ten Commandments, uh, we're going to be using the phrase Ten Words to describe them because that's the phrase that's used in the various places that the Ten Words are mentioned in the Torah. Uh, there are several passages that actually, actually refer to the Ten Words and the Hebrew is always ten words rather than ten commandments. I think that's a significant fact that uh, they're called the ten words rather than the ten commandments. As we'll see in the next episode, there are quite a, quite a number of commandments within the ten words. It's not simply a matter of ten words. Certainly there are more words than ten words, but there are also more the commandments than ten commandments. And besides that, the, what we know is the ten commandments include a lot of things besides imperatives. It's not just a list of 10 do's and don'ts. When we think of the 10 words, that's what we that's the way we summarize them. Sometimes they're summarized that way on plaques and things. They just have the simple do nots or do, uh, as the case may be. But in fact, there's exhortations, there's reminders of what the Lord has done and will do for Israel. There are promises uh, and uh, descriptions of the Lord's uh, threats. There are descriptions of the Lord's character uh, so the ten words are not merely commandments, but they're commandments that are, that are embedded within a larger set of words. I think that's a good way to get into the topic of this particular episode, which is the Torah in general. 
Uh, Jim has pointed out for many years that the Torah, although described as law in uh, English translations in the Old Testament and in the New, uh, Torah doesn't really match our conception of law. It's not a, there's not a one-to-one correspondence between what the Hebrew word Torah means and what we mean by law. Torah, uh, the word means instruction, and it includes a lot more than uh, merely commandments. Uh, as uh, Jim has pointed out, there are passages that give a commandment and then go into a, uh, a digression or an apparent digression, justifying the commandment, explaining the commandment, warning Israel about what, they, what happens if they don't keep the commandment, and all those are part of Torah. Uh, Torah is uh, instruction, uh, not merely a law code uh, in the strict sense that we use the term, but it's a set of instructions from Israel's God, Yahweh, uh, and it includes a description of his character and it includes, a, and includes exhortations, threats, and promises, as well as commandments. It, it's used, you know, for instruction. Instruction is, a, I think, a good translation for it. His delight is in the instruction of the Lord. In his instruction, he meditates day and night. So Torah has that larger meaning of God's instruction. So it's since it comes from God, instruction is law, but um, it's also teaching this whole realm of things. Whatever comes from God's mouth is Torah. Right. And in Proverbs, Torah is used not just to describe the, the words that come directly from the Lord's mouth, but also words that come through human teachers. Um, early in Proverbs, uh, there's Solomon exhorts his son to pay attention to the instruction of his father and the Torah of his mother. Yeah. So there's there's also mediated Torah that comes through the through through teachers. I was going to point to one passage that you've used, Jim, a number of times to to uh, highlight the character of Torah, and that's in. Exodus 22, beginning of verse 25. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. That's a rule. Gives a situation, and then it says, in this circumstance, this is what you are to do. And if it were just a matter of laying out the rules, then that would be adequate. But then the following verse, this is Exodus 22, 27. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So it's not just giving a rule. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you have to return it to him before it suns- the sun sets. But it's also appealing to uh, your humanity, the humanity of the, the creditor, that he not leave this man without his cloak in the night because he doesn't have any el- anything else to keep him warm. And it raises the ratchets up the uh, the stakes considerably. If the poor man is left without his cloak at night and he cries out to the Lord against this abuse, then the Lord is going to hear him and he's going to intervene on behalf of the the man who's been abused, the, the man who's been done an injustice. So there's a you don't find that in the I suspect you don't find that. I don't read a lot of congressional legislation, but I suspect you don't find that that kind of exhortation <laughs> in congressional legislation. We think of law, we think of very specific rules, situations that are described, but rules that are applied to those situations. 
we don't expect this kind of appeal to appeal to the humanity of the of the person involved, and certainly not the theological dimension that uh, Exodus twenty two twenty seven brings out. And the Torah is full of that. There's not just there are a lot of rules applied to particular situations, but there are also these other kinds of speech acts that are part of the Torah. And even in the ten words, as we'll see, uh, there are these other speech acts. It's not merely a matter of uh, the uh, not merely a matter of set of rules and do's and, do's and don'ts, but uh, the Lord is justifying them and giving them uh, support, referring to his own character and his own actions in support. One of the ways that uh, the Torah has been organized by Christians is in terms of a threefold classification of different different kinds of kinds of law. Uh, there's ceremonial law that has to do with uh, the offerings, the purity laws, things that pertain to the sanctuary. Uh, there's moral law that's seen, I think, primarily as moral commandments for individual Israelites, maybe a little bit broader than that. And then there's uh, civil law, judicial law that applies to the public law of Israel. And uh, that's the classification that's, it appears at least uh, in as early as Thomas Aquinas, it may go back earlier than that, but at least by the Middle Ages, uh, this was the way that Christians were classifying the Old Testament law. And it carries over into the Reformation, you find this kind of classification of Torah in um, the Westminster Confession that's assumed in the Westminster Confession and other Reformation era, con era confessions. And it's been a pretty standard way of classifying uh, different, different kinds of Torah, different uh, specific rules or laws in Torah since the Reformation. Uh, Jim, you've raised a number of objections or qualifications to that classification. That doesn't seem to fit what's actually going on in the law. No, it's not the way the law is presented. And um, it's once you start trying to make those classifications, it doesn't fit very well. And when you look at exegetes who have tried to start from that threefold classification of Torah, 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 <laughs> uh, you can't bomb very well with it. Uh, it doesn't work. The, um, the law, as it's presented in Exodus, comes as the ten words from God. And then um, there's a social law that's given, and then there's a liturgical law that's given, how Israel is to, is to approach God. And um, the social law includes at its heart a liturgical requirement. Uh, if you were to take the, that social law in Exodus 21 to 24 and diagram it, it comes out in a dull kind of a um, structure where what starts off at the beginning is matched by what's at the end. And, and the matching sections go to the middle where what's at the center is chapter 22, verses 18 uh, and 19 and 20. That's the center. The center is... You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Okay. Death penalty for a female practitioner of witchcraft. 
Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Death penalty for bestiality. He who sacrifices to any god other than to Yahweh alone shall be uh, utterly destroyed, put under the ban. Death penalty for um, sacrificing to any other god. Those three death penalties are the center of this law code. And they are matched out death penalty for false worship in the sense of sorcery, death penalty for sacrificing to any other god that's matched, and at the very center of the law code, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Now that goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Whoever listens to, excuse me, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Whoever has commerce with Satan in the form of an animal, I mean, you, you start having a whole bunch of things you can put together there, but listening to the animal is equivalent to having sex with him. It's the sin of Eve. It's the sin of Adam. It's the whole complex of things that goes into sex with an animal, and that's the center of the law. Uh, and it's a death penalty if it takes the form of sexual sin. Um, and that's the center of the law here. So just to, in support of that, Paul refers to his desire to protect his Second Corinthians 11, his desire to uh, protect the Corinthians from seduction, lest they, like Eve, be seduced by the serpent, something along those lines. Right. So Paul speaks of the temptation in the garden as a seduction. Right. So it is an act, a kind of act of bestiality, as you're saying. Right. It's assumed that intellectual seduction is equivalent to moral seduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the the point you're making is that this this is social legislation by and large. Yeah. Uh, but so it in, involves uh, you know crimes against property, uh, how to treat slaves. It deals with credit and uh, deals with borrowing and how you deal with borrowed. Uh, goods that are damaged, but right at the heart of it, right at the heart of this social legislation, which would, in classical terms, be put under judicial law, you have this liturgical law. So you can't really separate the two because then the the social law centers on the liturgical. Right, right. And that's the fulcrum that the entire social law turns. Mm. And the same is true in Leviticus, where you find that the liturgical laws wind up being centered in on social laws. Mm -hmm. So when you start analyzing and preaching and teaching these laws, they're all mixed up in terms of this threefold scheme. Right. Looking at the, the ten words specifically... Ten, the ten words are typically uh, considered part of the moral law or a summary of the moral law, um, at least a summary. But the second word is about liturgical action. You shall not make an image in order to bow down or serve it. There's a liturgical rule in that. 
you know, what is the Sabbath? How, how does the Sabbath yeah. law classified? Well, it's, it's moral in the sense that God requires it, requires each individual to take a day of rest. It's civil because the whole nation is taking a day of rest, but it's uh, in order to keep the day holy, and there's a holy convocation according to Leviticus 23 on the Sabbath day. So that's a that's another example. You have all the different these different kinds of laws are as they're seen kind of tangled up together. I mean, you can you can see and it's it. judicial in that the man who gathers sticks on right. the Sabbath is put to death. Right. Specifically, it's judicial because it includes a penalty. So I mean, you can see a general uh, a rough classification. You have certain laws that are pertaining to the sanctuary. Uh, certain laws that are pertaining to the land. That's roughly the sequence that you have in the book of Leviticus. It moves from sanctuary to land. But when you start getting into the details beyond those very rough classifications, uh, you start losing the the, uh, the distinction, get all blurred. Um, I think one of the one of the implications of that for us has been at Biblical Horizons and now at Theopolis. Uh, when you use the classification of ceremonial, judicial, and moral, um, the way that it's, that, that's, a, that's really a Christian way of classifying the law to figure out what still pertains to us. That's the way it was used in, when it's first introduced, it's used as a way of thinking about what, what uh, Christians still have to follow. So the moral law is still in force. We still have to commit, have to obey the 10, ten words, if you will, in some form. <laughs> this is with some, uh, with some debate about certain particulars. Uh, the civil law, if you take the Westminster Confession, the general equity continues of the judicial law, but you don't you don't uh, continue full force or the full fullness of the uh, of the judicial law, and the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ and therefore kind of drops away. That's the way it's often understood. But I think one of the things that that loses is the continuing import and continuing relevance of the of the liturgical or ceremonial law. Uh, if you just say well, that's all stuff that they used to do. We don't have to do it anymore. And all it does is point to Christ, and now we have Christ. Then you're losing all the insight that you get from the book of Leviticus into the meaning of, of worship and the form that the liturgy should take and so on. And that's something that we've spent a lot of time with over the years trying to figure out how those ceremonial laws still inform our worship. We don't keep the ceremonial laws as Israel did, but that's still shapes our worship, and I would say that we keep even the ceremonial law, but in a new covenant form. We still, uh, we still have ascensions and uh, purifications and uh, peace offerings. Uh, we still are called to be pure. That takes a different form in the new covenant, but all those Old Testament ceremonial laws, liturgical laws, still inform our life and worship. Yes, and that's because as 20th century biblical theology has been at pains to teach us, we are in Christ. And uh, the in Christness of the church has been a major theme of 20th century th uh, biblical theology, mm -hmm. so called, but it hasn't been worked out liturgically right. uh, because of uh, Anglo Lutheran phobia. <laughs> of the uh, the Reformed faith, which has the Reformed faith has done most to develop the in Christ theology, mm -hmm. but its fear of liturgy uh, has, uh, I think, 
put a, a tremendous roadblock in his ability to develop. It's it's fear of symbolism and uh, color and kisses of peace and all those bodily type of actions has has put a, a roadblock at the popular level mm-hmm. and at the Bible level. It, I, I've told this story numerous times, but I, I called a friend of mine who was actively involved in the translation of the English Standard Version of the Bible. And I said, how is the book of Leviticus being translated? He said, same as ever. And I said, you mean uh, in Leviticus chapter 1 is is um, the word uh, burnt offering being translated ascension? You and I both know, everybody knows that that word means ascend. He said, no, it's being translated burnt offering. And I said, why? He said, because... Nobody's going to buy the Bible if it says ascend. That's just too strange. He said it has to do with sales, Jim. <laughs> and uh, so there you are. Mm-hmm. And that, and and I, I asked him about several other words and phrases, and and he said, you know, we're up against that. And uh, he said they've got to make money, and this is a copyrighted Bible. And uh, it's got to pay for itself. We have to be able to pay for me and everybody else that worked on it. Uh, It's not being put out non-profitly by a church the way the King James was Mm -hmm. or being paid for by the state. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there you are. As long as that's the case, uh, translations have to reflect what will sell. And uh, so there you are. And and as you pointed out, actually using the more exact translation that this is ascension makes actually makes the text more relevant. Uh, you see a burnt offering, and you think, oh yeah, that's what that's what ancient people did. That's what kind of primitive people do. They burn animals. You say this is ascension to the Lord, then that puts it into a category that Christians are familiar with. It actually makes the text come alive if you translate it more literally. Yeah. And it makes it more relevant because that's what we're doing in worship. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to bring, uh, bring up another uh, general issue about the law uh, for this episode. We'll, we'll, we'll cover Jesus and the law, Paul and the law, maybe at the end of the whole series and talk about, uh, talk about those issues. But I wanted to bring up something that I know is dear to your heart, and that is uh, the 10 words as a transcript of the natural law. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> this, is, uh, this, is, this has been a, a pretty common claim about the 10 words. Uh, that there's a, a, a correlation between uh, what can be discerned from creation and what is speci- specified as the ten words, uh, and there's, with the additional uh, frequent claim that uh, the uh, the natural law is maybe, perhaps not universal but widely understood and known throughout throughout uh, uh, various cultures, and that that what's what's widely known is corresponds to what's the moral content of the Ten Words, or certainly, uh, or at least to, not certainly, but at least to the second half of the Decalogue, the last five commandments, the second table. Um, and I, there are a couple of things I want to say in favor of that idea, and then want to critique it. 
Um, one is that part of, if, if what is being said is that the ten words actually fit the way that God has created the world, there's a correspondence or fit between what God says and the orders and structures that he's embedded in the world. So, for example, um, he uh, at, at the creation, he instituted marriage, and the ten words forbid adultery, which is a violation of marriage. Uh, so there's a there's a corresponding, you know, God created them male and female, and there's a, uh, a one of the words is about is about marriage, which is relevant to the question of male and female, obviously. So if the if the claim is that the ten words actually fit with the way human beings are created, when I think we certainly that's the case, the ten words come from the same God who created the world. Uh, the ten words are uh, the speech of the God who spoke the world into existence. So we would expect there to be. Um, correspondence between the way God had made the world and the way that uh, the way that uh, He speaks about it and the way He tells us to live in it. Uh, the other thing uh, at the end of Romans Romans one, uh, when Paul's uh, presenting this uh, polemic against maybe against the Gentiles with a little bit of uh, a uh, a punch at the Jews along the way, he says that. Uh, God gives people over to a depraved mind to those things that are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, full of envy, and so on. And he lists a bunch of evils. And then very the very end, verse 32, although they, they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So whoever Paul is talking about, and it, it, it's hard to, to, to determine exactly who he's talking about. Whoever he's talking about, does he claim know God, he said that earlier, they know God, and they know the ordinance of God, but they refuse to practice them. They know God, but they suppress the truth about God. So they're in this kind of double double situation where they both know and don't know, where they know the ordinance of God and yet practice the things that God hates. They know God, and yet they suppress the truth about God. So, um, um, so there's some sense in which unbelievers are aware of God and his requirements. Paul says that. Um, I think the accent of obviously in Romans one is that God has given uh, uh, given idolaters over to their idolatry. He gives them over to sexual sin. He gives them over to depraved mind, and their conscience gets seared, and even the things that they know get uh, that get obscured and distorted under the under their sin. So um, uh, that's a that's a uh, uh, acknowledgement that there are some things that. Uh, within a natural law theory that I think are biblically sound. Um, but I, not, um, I know you want to chime in, Jim, but I'll just say a couple of things about why I don't think it's right to say that ten words are a transcript of, uh, of, the, uh, of whatever natural law is understood. If, if natural law means moral principles that are derived from creation without any input from special revelation, if that's what natural law is understood to be. And it, that's not always what it means, but if, it, if that's what it's understood, then the ten, the ten words just don't fit. The ten words begin with the declaration that the Lord who is speaking these words is the God of the Exodus. Uh, Yahweh um, uh, says, you shall have no other gods before me. Me, obviously, is Yahweh. He's not saying, be faithful to whoever the gods happen to be in your ancestral tradition. He's saying, be faithful to me, worship me, the God of the Exodus. That's not something that can be discovered from just examination of creation without any input from 
uh, special revelation. We need God's words to identify himself as the God of the Exodus and the God who should be worshipped. Um, do not take my, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Again, that depends on the specific God, Yahweh. Um, so throughout, especially in the first five commandments, I think it's clear that these are, these are words that depend on the fact, depend on, uh, they depend on special revelation from God, verbal revelation from God, in order to know what they mean and know who this is that's speaking. Natural law is baloney. That's my chime. No. Um, what's called natural law is a malicious uh, refusal to grant that this is all divine law. There are echoes of uh, God's presence in all human society. You've got God, you've got three persons of God who share among themselves and that that conversation among the three persons of God is known among the creatures and um, and that conversation is naturally heard among human beings who are made in the image of God and to some extent that conversation is overheard among all human societies and then is suppressed and um, because people don't want to hear the content of it um, Romans 1 says is suppressed. The reason Romans 1 is kind of vague is it applies to the Jews in a particular way, but applies more generally to all society. And uh, I think you can make a pointed, a pointed application of Romans 1 to, to Israel because Israel is the pointed application of what's true of all humanity and I don't. I don't know that we have to choose between the two. Uh, you may have uh, reasons to uh, make that choice. Um, I haven't looked at it in a long time. <laughs> uh, you may have. You have. I think. Oh, Peter. So yeah. Just on the Romans, one thing. I, um, this is this is very much a footnote to this discussion. But I think rhetorically. Uh, a lot of what Paul says sounds like a condemnation of the Gentile world uh, that a Jew would be quite familiar with and would cheer on. But there are quotations. I mean, he, he says that yeah. the quotation from Psalm 106, which is about Israel's idolatry. So in the midst of that, he's already beginning to critique Israel. And then I think it's kind of a punchline when he gets to chapter 2. And you, yeah. O Jew. So it's like, I, I see it as a kind of Nathan move. Yeah. Uh, he sets them up and then he says, you, thou art the man. Um, I think a, a Jewish listener or reader who's being attentive would say, oh, wait a second, he's talking about us too, even in chapter 1. But I think it's framed in a way that it kind of gets the Jews on board and then yeah, that makes there's, sense. there's a rhetorical punch in chapter 2. But you, So your point about the natural law is then uh, to, to attribute this to nature as some kind of autonomous entity rather than to, as you're saying, the conversation of the, of the trained persons that's overheard within the creation. Uh, that... That's the that's the malicious part. It, it detaches God from. It's God who's speaking in the creation. That's why this. That's why 
human beings know something of God and of his requirements. Societies yeah. know something is because God is speaking, not because nature is a certain way. Yeah. Autonomously. And that's why um, this so-called natural law takes the form of other religions. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take the form of, hey, look at nature over here. It takes mm -hmm. the form of, look at these gods over here, uh, dryads and naiads. And uh, they may be small gods, but they're gods, they're powers. Mm -hmm. um, we can say that, uh, let's see, Rosenstock QC says there are five basic powers that are bigger than man. Uh, nature, fire, I mean, he's got them divided up. Water. Water. Air. Air. Earth. I don't know. Well, he's got them divided up into Venus, Mars, right. uh, Jupiter, Saturn, a government, Sex. Uh, yeah, government, sex. Um, I mean, Mars would be violence or war, right? Yeah, government, government, government powers, uh, enthusiasm, um, hmm. uh, Mercury, and, uh, and natural disaster, Saturn. Hmm. These are things that are bigger than human beings are and that we, we have to take account of, so we call them gods. Yeah, you were talking about how, um, again, God created the world. God is active in the world. Human societies confront the true God. They can't help but confront the true God. But they suppress that and therefore attribute to these other divine, divinity, to these other powers. I think right. that's the, the right. point you were making. Right. right. And so they don't, they don't say nature does this. They say there are these other gods who do this. These other gods are fighting each other. They're, uh, they make up stories about gods uh, that are like stories of big men. Mm -hmm. And the gods become associated with the giants that existed in the ancient world and, uh, and other things. You, you, if you want to sort out the stories of the gods... The stories of the gods clashing with each other. Yeah. Um, they're always going to be associated with human warfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously, you do get, when you get to, into philosophical, uh, ancient philosophy, philosophical discourse, then you do have a kind of demythologized treatment of uh, natural powers and. Uh, the Greek philosophers will attribute to nature things that earlier Greeks would have attributed to the gods. But I think that there's a, it's a question in my mind that I, I, it's not, I'm not stating an opinion, but I wonder just how demythologized that actually is. You've changed the name and you're attributing to, to something that's just part of this natural order. Uh, but if you're attributing these same powers to nature that you used to attribute to the gods, uh, it's not clear to me that it's entirely demythologized. You're just transferring names, as it were. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I've often pointed out is that um, you go back to Genesis 2, and you've made similar comments. Genesis 2, uh, God has created a world. God has created a world that manifests His glory, or He is known in the creation. His requirements, as Paul says, His requirements are known in creation. And yet, and, and human beings are not yet sinners. And yet, even in that situation, 
God speaks and gives verbal instruction. And that verbal instruction is essential if uh, Adam is to be obedient. Uh, if he just relied on, as Eve does in the temptation scene, if he just relies on the created appearance of things to draw his moral conclusions, you know, the fruit is good, good for food, it's delightful to the eyes, it's, it's, um, uh, value, it's, it's good to make one wise. Those are all true, and those are conclusions he can draw from, uh, from nature, as it were. If he was just going on nature, then he wouldn't have that command, don't eat it, even though it has all these qualities, still don't eat it because I said so. So the more general point is that even within the unfallen creation, even with unfallen human beings, God didn't leave human beings just to draw conclusions from creation. He was speaking to them, and they had they needed that verbal instruction in order to live live uh, obediently. Yes. Yeah, so you're saying that uh, whatever natural revelation there was needed the complement of verbal revelation. Right. Exactly. And John Frame has made the point in the opposite direction, which I think is important, equally important, that. You need to know something about the creation in order to understand God's yeah. verbal revelation. Don't eat from the tree, at least, you know, or the fruit of the tree. You need to know what a tree is. You need to know what fruit is. You need to know what the center of the garden is. And um, none of those things are verbally revealed by God. Those are things that, so that even to use the law and apply the law, apply the commandments, you have to, you have to have, uh, some knowledge of the creation. So the two work in tandem, and it works both ways. We can't understand what the creation is telling us without the verbal revelation. We can understand the verbal revelation without some understanding of the creation. Right. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.